Father, thank you for taking us on another journey, for bringing us up to the high places. Thank you for freedom to study the Word, to hold convictions. Thank you, Lord, for freedom of expression. And thank you for protecting our right to choose in the Garden of Eden. Tonight, Lord, I pray that you'll continue to bless us as we look into the life of the last apostle and anticipate the last invitation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I think the question that the world is asking is, is it real? Have you noticed that since the onslaught of, of the new revolution, we might call it the sexual revolution of the last 30 or 40 years where free love and, and freedom of expression sexually has taken hold and lawlessness has increased, we see a corresponding uh, statistical assurance that Christ's words are true, that the love of many has grown cold. And there's an increasing number of young men and young women who want to know is marriage worth it? Is the risk worth it? Will it work out, or will it sim- simply be a bunch of trouble to me? They don't want to go through the grief of watching something that's to be so good unravel into something so bad. I'd like to suggest that underneath that layer of skepticism and wondering is a question that ought to be answered first. And that is whether or not the love as described in the Bible is real. Uh, We heard Pastor Michael and Pastor Jonathan in their seminar on digital evangelism, and I believe uh, Pastor Page also referencing to those Google searches about what is love, what is God. I'm here to assure you today that we live in a more skeptical world than ever before, and the question everybody's asking is, Is it real? Does this Jesus really exist? Is there a group of people that are reflecting the theory into practice? And tonight, as we end our camp meeting, I want to assure you that the last lived and the most loved of the apostles, yea, the disciples of his age, leaves us with the directive of how to keep it real, an assurance that it is real, and he brings to the front of the New Testament and New Covenant experience the admonition from the psalmist that people should be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's like smelling your afternoon lunch before you eat it and knowing the cook. You don't have to worry that what you're going to have as a culinary experience is going to disappoint you. But how many times in the name of Christ Have we watched Holmes descend into hypocrisy and incongruency of of conviction and action, and the children come away wondering, is it really real? Little boys and girls who, who look to their moms and dads and hopefully sit in family worships 
Are the moms and the dads behind the scenes maintaining that love relationship with Christ, working out the dynamics of their marriage, processing not in what I'll call the pseudo-emotional reality of emotionless living, but actually loving each other passionately enough to sometimes be as angry as they've ever been with another human being. But their commitment is such they're going to dig down to the foundation and they're going to build a household of love on Jesus Christ, him the third corded strand, so that their children can know as hard as it is and as challenging as it is, it is absolutely real. There is such a thing as love. Yes, indeed, the devil knows that most of the conversion experience is caught before it's taught. So if you were the devil, wouldn't you want to destroy the love relationship of the body of Christ for each other in the home, in the school, in the larger institutions, certainly in the church? Wouldn't you like to turn every denomination and every spiritual journey into a, an expression of faith but an expressionless dynamic of true love. So come up with your list, and let's see how many ways we can divide people. But tonight, I want to assure you that the one that loved Jesus made it very clear that he who does not love his brother does not know God. He would go on to say that he who does not obey God does not know God because that obedience is an expression of love for the one who was subject to lawlessness so that we could be subject to the law of God, written on our hearts, remade into the image and person of Jesus Christ. Tonight I want to talk to you about John the Beloved who challenges us to be the family of the Beloved and to anticipate going home to be with our beloved, dear Jesus. If you have your Bibles this evening, let's go to the Gospel of John. John chapter 21. He goes all the way through the story of Christ before he reveals in, in direct format the fact that he has a special friendship with Jesus. Does that make Jesus love for anyone else? Any the less? Not at all. But there was a special group of 12, and inside that special group, there were three that were especially close. And when you get inside that group, there was one that drew even closer. And the very last words of his gospel narrative, John tells us that he's special to Jesus. Friends, I want to tell you tonight, he's no more special to Jesus than you are. God loves you, and there's a special blessing for those who love God having never seen him that's going to draw us into this circle just like John without sin in between to limit and stratify relationships. When on earth, this man pressed closer to Jesus than anyone else, but friends, it's all right with Jesus if you want to press just as close. Jesus is walking with Peter. John is walking along as well. Peter turning around, verse 20, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper table and said, Lord, who's the one who's betraying you? And seeing, so Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? 
follow me. Therefore, the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only that if I want him to remain until I come, it doesn't really matter to you. This disciple was called up on the Mount of Transfiguration. This was a disciple who was the first at the tomb. This was the disciple who not only told us that in heaven we would get new names, but while he was on earth, he got one given by Jesus. This was the disciple with a brother in the group, and they became known as the sons of thunder. This was one of those thundering young men whose devotion to Jesus was somewhat misplaced. We find it in at least two places. Once, when this affront comes to Christ because he's on his way to Jerusalem and needs some Samaritan hospitality, and the Samaritans won't receive Jesus. They're going to let him go hungry. And while James and John don't totally understand the love of God, their their ardent affection for Jesus recognizes an indignity, and these two men say, Lord, Luke 9, 54, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? And you know what the love relationship with Jesus was like? Jesus rebuked them in kindness and truth, and he said, you know what? You don't understand what kind of spirit you have. John received the rebukes. Judas rejected them. Their paths diverged as they got closer to the culmination of Christ's ministry. And another place recorded in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, John is humble enough and childlike enough to say, Teacher, we saw someone who doesn't follow us. He's not one of us, and he was casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he doesn't follow us. You see, woven into the fabric of their expression and love for Christ was selfish ambition. There was a vacancy that was yet to be filled in the heart of the apostles. Prejudiced, bigoted, unconverted, yet growing in their love for Christ, Jesus patiently bore with them and made them into the pillars of the new Jerusalem, the new experience, the cornerstones with him for our heavenly experience. We're standing on the shoulders of these great men. This is the same John who wrote to us in John chapter 1, verse 12, to as many as believed on him, to them he gave power to become what, friends? The children of God. Take your Bibles and open up to the little epistle. 1 John chapter 3. This is where so simplicity and the beautiful love of Christ come together on behalf of the hopes of the experience of the church that would follow. 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. It says, See how great the love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it didn't know him. And by the way, friends, I want to assure you, the world in the church didn't accept Jesus. They had come to love darkness 
And when the world is in the church today, it will reject some of the simplest expressions of Christ-like love coming from the broadest spectrum of mental ability. But I want to assure you today that all of Christ's followers are as down-to-earth as the greatest men and the largest hearts that have ever followed Him. And they know that coming as a child before Christ is the directive of Matthew 18. It was the life of the twelve. And once they gave up their selfish ambition... Their joy began. There's an old Hungarian proverb that says, when selfish ambition dies, joy comes to life. How many of us, perhaps because we do have this vacancy yet to be filled by Christ, are looking for the external affirmation in place of the internal joy that would allow us to be anything or nothing, but we are going to draw close to Jesus and we're going to follow him in drawing close to each other. Beloved, verse 2, now we are children of God, and it's not appeared to us as yet what we will be. We don't have all the mysteries worked out, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And in this beautiful simplicity, he goes on to write, not in any way that would suggest that we earn our salvation, but that with the great goal of seeing him and with the knowledge of all that he suffered and with the recognition of all that we are, not so complimentary though it may be, that everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Friends, fixed on him. By beholding, we become changed. We've been studying the book Steps to Christ. We came to this wonderful, simple awareness that when you plant something, if the conditions are right, it'll grow. But if you surround it with things that will destroy it, the the blast of heat, the blight of overexposure to the sun, the absence of water, it won't grow. But as you draw near to Jesus, as you immerse yourself in the community of faith, as you tune out from the world and tune into the love of Christ, you can't help but become like him. And the purifying work will go on with little bitty opportunities every day. And Christ will help you. Christ will change you. Christ will live in you. It's an amazing journey. But I believe when we come to the discussion of John the Beloved, there's one thing that stands out in John's heart, and that is as Jesus became his elder brother, an expression of Isaiah's uh, declaration that not only would he become our elder brother, but he was somehow even indeed the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He was all these things. Somehow, John drew deeper into the family experience of God ahead of the rest. But friends, as we come behind, we can follow on and enter in the same way. John has a special burden that the family of God knows the joys and the privileges of being sons and daughters, princes and princesses. He wanted, I believe, more than any other gospel writer, any other person that encountered the living Christ, for us to know the joy of being a child of God. Go over to the gospel, chapter 17, John 17. How do I know this? Is that an opinion, pastor? Well, yes, it is an opinion, but it's not completely based solely on my own assessment. When we look at the narrative space that's dedicated to a completely different gospel, or at least a uniquely different gospel. We see John capturing encounters where outcasts are brought in. 
Jesus having encounters, fierce conversations with those that he wanted to win even though they didn't want him on the inside. And we come to this final week of Jesus' life where he's spending this extra time focusing on on what he hopes for his family that he's going to have to leave behind. And we come to this special prayer that John records in John 17. I'll begin with verse 17. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through the truth. Your word is true. Of course, the logos, the word of truth, is the opening dynamics of this gospel. It is the living word, the transforming word. It is the living presence of Christ. It is the written word woven into the fabric of our being. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. In other words, we're following behind and entering in to the experience of Christ. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that's you and me, you can write your name in the margin there, that they will be what, friends? One. That they will be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may, what? Believe that you sent me. Yes, it's a skeptical world. They want to know if it's real. Do you really love the person down the pew from you in proper Christian affection, brotherly and sisterly concern? Is the family of God really family, or is that archaic language? Is it really brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so? Are we really praying for each other and considering the needs of each other above ourselves? John understood and he recorded the importance of these words because Jesus understood that unless there was a different communion and a different community, we might as well just hang our placard up and go home because anybody can proclaim and anybody can profess, but when it actually comes into the experience and starts the amazing transformation of selfish human beings being woven into a fabric of heavenly harmony, that's undeniably different. You can't press together if you don't get together. You can't press together if you don't pray for and with each other. You can't press together when lingering resentments and suspicions and evil surmisings are running through your mind. You can't press together when your own needs aren't met in Christ and somebody else is making you insecure because they seem more gifted, they seem more articulate, they seem more influential, they seem more important. So what? In the eyes of God, there's only one of you and all the billions of stars in the sky and billions of grains of sands on the sea. God made only one of you and you're just supposed to be you. And when you're in Christ, it's wonderful for everybody else to be who they are too. What a wonderful thing, the amazing diversity of God that he should make us so entirely unique and different. All of these innumerable encyclopedic dynamics of the DNA only recently discovered as believers we must serve an awesome God and believe whatever handicap or inhibition or challenge we might have. There's a God up above that has something special for us. It's his love and also something special for us to do. And that's to reflect it in a way nobody else can through the the sieve, through the lens of our experience.
Yes, Jesus knew and John knew that all the proclaiming would add up to a nothing but a hill of beans, a big cipher, a zero, a nothing. If we didn't understand what it meant to be family, what it meant to actually be a son or a daughter of Christ, because the world is naturally very skeptical, and every honest Christian has to say, we've given them plenty of reasons to be that way. How many pastors have turned television ministries into mega businesses? How many elders and deacons have walked away from their fidelity to their spouse? How many moments has it been when someone has cowered to speak a true word when somebody standing up would have turned the whole tide, but everybody was afraid for reputation and nobody wanted to bear the emotional cross of being the person on the wrong side of the right idea or the right side of the idea even though everybody else is wrong? You see, there's a bond of perfection, according to Paul in the book of Colossians chapter 3, and that bond of perfection is love, and love can't be killed. It can be run over, it can be stepped on, but it blooms and blossoms through the power of Christ in the midst of suffering, and that love is to be experienced between the family of God. And you have to remember who this John was. This was the same John with his mother and his brother who went to Jesus and stepped right on top of the rest of the ten saying, I really would like to have that spot to the left, and he'd like to have the spot to the right, and this is mama's request. It's hard to dishonor a mother in Israel, but Jesus had to tell them, do you understand what you're asking for and what, what price tag that comes with? They assured them that they did, but they were wrong. Jesus understood that behind the question was a genuinely beautiful desire. Isn't it wonderful how Christ sees us beyond our own ability to see our blind spots and our flat spots? Isn't it wonderful that Jesus can see beyond what we're doing and understand there is at least a modicum of innocent, pure, good desire behind it all? This is how we're to see each other. You've heard me say before, if you sit in this congregation regularly, I know more bad things about the people that attend church here than any other person, hands down. It's always been that way. No, it wasn't this church. If we were to go back eight years, it would have been almost 20 years in one church. And in that church, I absolutely categorically knew more about everybody than any one single individual after experiencing a generation raising my kids in that community. And what a debt of gratitude I have to that church. They were a fantastic family of faith, and they endured the price tag of growing together. And so many of them, true conscientious Christians who didn't cut and run when the emotional work got hard, but actually practiced the presence of Christ, lived out Matthew 18, went directly to the people they needed to talk to. Oh, not all the time. The sting of criticism and gossip managed to make its way at times through that community of faith too, like it made through yours. But don't give up, friends. This very same Jesus and this brother John followed on to know love and to love as Jesus loved and you and I can too. Indeed, it is the family that is to be the final and greatest expression. Now, just before I came out here to preach, I went ahead and looked at my, my app for the Ellen White estate, just to make sure. And I decided to type in some phrases 
So I typed in, you know, with the proper Boolean dynamics on each side, certain words, one of them being press together. 400 and some odd times she uses the word press together. But because I've preached on this subject of unity before, uh, which tonight is not really the subject, but it is the function of the family to be unified in Christ, I decided let's do the prayer of Christ, which is a reference to the verses I've just read. 700 and some odd references. Of course, some of them are multiples, no doubt. But for some reason, whether it was her or a compiler, they decided that these phrases were important. But then I decided to get just a little bit simpler, and I typed in the word unity. Get your number. Let the mind whirl. How many times does this modern-day articulator of inspiration and love suggest that whether it's in the family or the home or the church, the word unity should be preeminent. You have your number? 6,700, and I think it was 19 times. How unified are we? How unified are you as a spouse with that one you made the promise to? What kind of time, energy are you you taking to dig down to a foundation that will actually allow each of you to be benefited by each other's love? How many words of affirmation are you giving so there's security enough to talk about the insecure dynamics? And wouldn't you know it, right at the end of time, the devil has only one goal, and that is to make sure that the corporate experience, the family of God, is not unified and together. So give them lots to do with their education and give them lots to do with their money and give them lots to do to make sure their children succeed and give them lots to do to make sure they keep a little bit of sanity for all of those other productions so that their margin time just makes sure they can't come together, they can't press together, they can't be one. They can't have the witness that is incontrovertible. I want you to think about the word, incontrovertible. They may not like your doctrine. They may think your diet is weird. They may think your dress is old-fashioned. They may think you're just a little bit too limited in the freedom of entertainment opportunities. But there's one thing they can't deny. Just like the Romans could not deny the love of the, of the scorned and outcast early church, they can't deny that you know how to love and that others love you in return. The world wants it to be true. It's just pricey for it to happen because the devil is constantly rolling boulders down onto the highway of love trying to slow down the traffic so that people can't actually get from the destination of stranger to bonded in Christ. But healthy homes and healthy marriages and healthy churches keep saying, Jesus, we need your help. we got to roll this boulder off the road because we're on the, we're on the narrow way of love and we need you, Lord, because we know the devil wants to throw something into our lives to keep us from loving that brother down the pew, loving that sister down the pew. Yes, indeed, oneness. This is the beauty. This is the dynamic of family. When you get into a good family, friends, you don't have to be convinced of anything. Ask me how I know. I love my mother and I love my father, and and they have kept a marriage for almost 55, 56, 57 years. The truth of the matter is, 
with the touch of Christ in their lives. They're, they're catching up with all the things that Jesus has wanted them to have. <clears throat> but as a teenager, when I was dropped into that Peoria church and I was invited home to the pastor's house to have lunch, I want to tell you, it didn't take long for me to recognize this is good. I didn't need him to preach me another sermon. I used to think his sermons were as boring as could be. And then all of a sudden, one day when I was sitting in the church, he was a fantastic man. And he was married to a fantastic woman. And by God's grace, not too many months or years ago, I had the chance to see him after probably 40 years. He baptized me on a hot July day with my sister as a teenager in that Peoria church. But I want to tell you, something happened inside of this man, me, and his sermons became the most interesting sermons I had ever heard. And I sat in the pew listening. God was doing a work. I was being drawn into this family experience. I had tasted and seen that the Lord was good and the junk food of, of satisfaction from the world wasn't going to drag me away from the sweetness, the harmony, and the beauty of that wonderful love of Christ manifested in an actual human experience. This is what God is calling us to, but it takes so much work that most of us are just a little too lazy and careless and indifferent and afraid and maybe ignorant about how to actually get there. I just happen to believe that John is the ultimate simplifier of the Bible message, and he doesn't give us formulas, but he does explain what ought to happen, and the Holy Spirit steps in to connect those dots. And whether it's bringing back the words of Jesus that we ought to go talk to somebody, give it a try. How many times have I had somebody say, won't do any good, won't do any good? So I'm thinking to myself, this person has a prophetic gift. They already know it isn't going to work. Maybe we should sign them up. Maybe they can forecast the future in other ways. Won't do any good. My response is, how do you know until you try? I'm going to tell you, it always does some good. You know the good it does? It does the good of you knowing that you did what you could, which is exactly what the New Testament writers said. They said, as far as possible, live at peace with all men. And when somebody won't hear you, and somebody won't be honest about their contribution, at least you can know that you tried. And maybe somewhere down the road, they'll change the way they're relating to you and say, I'd like to pick back up where we left that off. I want to tell you, we are living in an age in which the devil would like to give us a sideline which would become a dividing line. And it doesn't matter to me doctrinally what it is. In Ellen White's day, it was the daily of Daniel 8, central, you could say, to the development of Adventist prophetic eschatology. But she told him, stop writing about it, stop publishing it, stop talking about it. It is a minor matter. A little farther on down the way, we had the law in the book of Galatians tied distinctly to the message of righteousness by faith. And we had conference presidents going this way and some going that way. And we had people following them off into their loyalties, which were to people. But let's take a cue from Paul when he says, some of you are saying, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. He said, did any of them die for you? Our first loyalty is to Christ. This is how we keep love alive in a politically correct age. We've decided that what we should protect is the feelings. Now, I don't like to have my feelings hurt any more than the next guy. Everybody is insecure 
until they're made secure. There is nobody whose barrel is so watertight that they got all the security poured into them they needed at one phase in their life, and they never need a word of encouragement, affirmation, love, tenderness, or sympathy. As a matter of fact, we're all leaky vessels, and we all doubt ourselves. And how many times, how many days do you have to go through before you realize you're just naturally prone to mess up and make mistakes? We all have this self-accusing, self-doubting spirit that came with sin, and it's just so easy for us to live that way, and then to start projecting out of our insecurity critiques of other people. Friends, I'm here to tell you, we must press together. We should take the advice from Steps to Christ, pray for each other, and she says, when you start praying for somebody else, let them know you're doing it. Weaving the fabric of security into the element of our Christian experience is a priority in the mind of Jesus Christ. It is a priority in the elements and the writings of John. It is a call to Christian unity and family togetherness, but it takes so much work. It involves vulnerableness. It involves emotional anguish. Some of us are woven a little different in regards to how much interpersonal and, and, and personal dialogue we want to have. But Christ does not let any one person off the hook. There is a, a ladder of intimacy, proper spiritual and relational intimacy that grows in whatever the definition on the relationship is, be it marriage, be it parent, be it friend, be it coworker. And all the time, Jesus is looking that we might reflect to the world something the world does not know how to get because they don't have Jesus. So what is it today? Well, you go this way on women's ordination and someone will go that way. You go this way on last generation theology and someone else will go this way. You go this way on that and someone else will go that way on that. And I wonder how many times human pride and insecurity is standing in the way of us being one. And I believe that if there is a national generational sin... It is arrogance of idea and pride of opinion that would not subject oneself to the elemental dynamic of saying, you know what? Perhaps this is really not central to the experience of me or you. And yet there are those that are waiting to thrust upon us templates that suggest this is the tipping point. This is the dividing line. Get on the right side of this. Get on the wrong side of that. There is something that precedes theological debate and division, and it is the love between the brothers, and it is the love between the sisters. There is something that says, I'll actually lay down my life for you. <laughs> what is it with these Christians? The Romans hated them. They mocked them. They scorned them. They derided those first century Christians. But in three generations, they conquered the pagan world. It was their love. John would write, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you'll have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ will purify you from all sin. I'm here to tell you nobody's going to heaven on their own. 
You've read before that we're going to go through a period of time where we can't lean on any human being. You're exactly right. But until we get to that time, you better be leaning as hard as you can lean and learning as much as you can learn because you're going to need the prayers of those you love even when you can't see them and even when they're not around. God is calling us to a type of experience that does not easily believe evil about each other and refuses to be dishonest with ourselves when evil surmising and insecurity would make it convenient and easy for us to step on somebody who's not there so we can get just a little bit higher in the esteem of everybody else. And it's absolutely flat out wrong. Jesus is inviting us into an experience that's different from the world. And our experience will be caught before it's taught. And we will be able to do a whole lot more explaining and a whole lot less convincing. I want you to think about it. It wasn't hard for me to spend a Sabbath with people who love Jesus and love me. It wasn't hard for me to step away from the television and the basketball court, not when I had something else, something better. Take your Bible and turn over to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. How could we preach a sermon on John and not reference to the book of Revelation? I'm only going to choose two spots. The one is our scripture reading, and the other is this amazing fourth hallelujah. Verse 6 of chapter 19, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peal of thunders. All right, so let's just break it down just a little bit. The voice of a great multitude, that's people. The sound of many waters in the book of Revelation, that's people. And the sound of mighty peals of thunder. This is divine proclamation. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage supper has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was given to her the cloth for herself of fine linen, bright and clean. This is the robe of Christ's righteousness. For the fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. And then he said to me, right. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Can it be that true, friends? The garment's provided. The feast is waiting. The invitation is yours. And we're going to sit at a table and Christ is going to serve us. It's a beautiful thought. We're going to be family, but it gets just a little bit better because Jesus would say, and at least one apostle would write it down, let not your heart be troubled. Could we say it together? Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you, that I, so I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And I love the fact that really the better translation is, is that I've got a house and I've prepared a room for you in it. Family, I know no greater joy than walking down the road, holding my wife's hand, talking in a beautiful love relationship 
not far behind it, is sitting with my family at a table, living, laughing, loving, working. At the end of the day, their opinions matter about my life and my experience more than anybody else's. And the joy of being in their presence, just in their presence, is better than any other joy that can be offered to me in this world. Why? Because love is there. And what would you give for love? You wouldn't sell it for anything. Many waters can't quench it. I want Jesus to set himself as a seal on my heart, on my family's heart, on my church's heart, and I don't want anything to divide us. We may not always agree, but we have gone beyond disagreement. We have laid the superstructure of unity in the humility of Christ to love and realize that my opinion on this just might be wrong. If the church will put on the robe of Christ's righteousness, withdrawing from all allegiance with the world, Acts of the Apostles, page 601, there is before her the dawn of a bright and glorious day. God's promise to her will stand fast forever. He will make those... He will make her an ex- eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. Truth passing by those who despised and reject it will triumph. Although at times apparently retarded, its progress has never been checked. And when the message of God meets with opposition, he will give it additional force that it may exert greater influence. Endowed with divine energy, it will cut its way through the strongest bears and triumph over every obstacle. So what's keeping you, friends? What's keeping you from pressing in and pressing together and seeing the brother and sister in the pew as someone you're actually bonded to closer than those in your family who don't know Jesus? What's keeping you from making the centrality of gathering together and pressing together and coming together that we might be one so that we could know the joy of this family experience on earth? Ellen White will say, we are to have a little bit of heaven to go to heaven in. Why shouldn't it be the church? Can be. I've been in churches where it is. I've been in churches where it's growing and developing. I'm in one now. I hope you are too. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who's thirsty say, come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, let him take it. And he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. I once worked at a summer camp that went out of business. It's the third entity I've talked with you about today that's gone out of business. My wife and I were newlyweds, and the youth director honored our contract even though the camp was shut down. These young poor kids in love, they need money. We're not going to hire anybody else this summer, but we're going to hire them. We're going to keep them on. I'm not sure how big of a blessing it was. For those of you that worked at summer camps, you understand that 
Week number one, you're strangers. I'm talking about the staff now. Week number two, you're bonded and solving all the challenges and too busy to think about anything. By week number six or seven, there's a fraternity that's developed in prayerful ministry to disciple these young children, all of whom you're sure you don't want your kids to ever have those kinds of problems or challenges. And by the end of the summer, when you say goodbye, people who were mere strangers are now like that brother or sister that's in your real live family. I can remember walking up and down the main hill. There was no sound of voices. I can remember looking into the empty buildings gathering dust. I'm not sure I've ever had a more depressing assignment in my life. How long should our churches look like we're not anxious to be together on the other side of Jordan? How long should the people drive by and only see cars there one day a week? How long should the church be an auxiliary attachment to our life, not the central modus operandi of of all our being inside a proper relationship with Jesus? Friends, we're missing out, and the world is consequentially missing out as well as we fail to make a priority of coming into a deeper family communion with each other for the sake of the glory of Christ and the ultimate driving out of the spirit of skepticism. Our kids need to see it, and they need to be challenged to invest in it. Our non-believing relatives need to understand that it's important and sometimes they won't understand. Sometimes our believing relatives with much more laissez-faire commitment to a lost world won't like it. But let us come in communion with Christ and then into communion with each other and let's give the world an invitation that they just can't turn down like the aroma of a seven-course meal in a beautifully decorated hall with wonderful music and wonderful entertainment. Let's give the world an invitation that transcends all the cheap dynamics that are out there today. Let's let them see that they can still taste and see and that Jesus is saying, I'm looking forward bringing you home. It's a seven-day journey, friends. Let's make that final seventh tabernacle journey with Jesus, and let's leave behind the pilgrim progress at the gates of the new Jerusalem. And you might walk through one with the name of Issachar or the name of Judah or whatever, but when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it's going to be. But let's let the rejoicing start now. Let's go through the hard work of going to heaven in a heaven that's created by the love and the presence of Jesus in our lives. Let's remember... He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Oh, it's very convenient to not be with each other because then your love's not tested. But tonight, friends, I'm just extending the invitation one more time. It's real. Jesus is coming. It's real. There's a heaven, and there's a heaven to go to heaven in, and I'm appealing to you at the end of this at the end of this camp meeting journey that we are to move forward to the finish and we are to give the invitation and our very person 
is to make the invitation attractive before the words are ever on our lips because we go the extra mile. We suffer sometimes without complaining. I'm not talking about per- perpetual dysfunction relationships, but I'm talking about the momentary irritations and the job nobody else wants to do and the ability to actually care for people. I'm calling you to be an echoing sentiment in heaven's orchestra. Come. Come into the fellowship. Come into the joy and anticipate a greater joy. This message preached on the backside of great disappointment in 1844 is going to crescendo into an undeniable contest between good and evil, light and darkness, and when it's all said and done and the information overload that marks our society just seems to stand in the way, the unavoidable, unequivocal, completely clear, incontrovertible essence of truth will shine through and that there is something different about these people that defies all the critique, defies all the caricatures, defies all the misrepresentations. These people have something that's real. I know it's real because the cornerstone of their experience is love. Even so, come Lord Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.